You're listening to Equity Rising, a podcast from King County Equity Now. I'm one of the producers of the show, Julia Drachman. In this episode, you'll hear our host, Trey Holiday, speaking with Oluchi Omeoga in Minneapolis. Oluchi is a co-creator and core team member of Black Visions Collective, a Black-led organization working in Minnesota. They also co-founded the Black LGBTQ Plus Migrant Project, BLMP. In this episode, Trey and Aluchi share their experiences with the Black Lives Matter uprisings this summer and discuss how intersectionality factors into their work. Please enjoy and thank you for listening. Hey there, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Equity Rising this week. We are talking to Oluchi of the Black Visions Collective. Thank you so much, Oluchi, for joining us on Equity Rising today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Absolutely. We're excited because Equity Rising is really all about listening to the voices of the movement all over the world. So many folks working on equity. So I'm going to start it right on out with your name, the organization you work for, your title and where you are. Yeah. Hey, my name is Aluchi. Um, I use any pronouns calling in from Minneapolis, Minnesota, and I am a core team member and campaign lead for Black Visions in Minnesota. Ah, Minnesota. We're going to be learning a lot about Minnesota today. Thank you so much. And, and, you know, right here on Equity Rising, we love to really start out with our segment called First Things First. So we got to ask you, how are you taking care of yourself right now? Well, yeah, I love that question. So it's moving into Scorpio season, which is going to be intense. And it is also retrograde currently as we're taping this. So really just trying to be with myself and get into as little trouble as possible during a Mercury retrograde. But yeah, really, last night I cooked uh, dinner with my friends. We cooked like a really dope chicken Alfredo, which was really nice just to like be in community with each other. Driving up to Duluth, which is about two and a half hours north of Minneapolis. And that's where the Great Lake is in Minnesota. So it's just really nice to be on the boundary waters in the fall before it gets too cold. And just like look at the trees, be in nature. Yeah, a couple things that I'm doing to heal myself in this time. You know what, Oluji? That sounds real dope. I might have to take some of your tips right on over here. Let me tell you, definitely need to uh, find more time to take care of myself. You know how it is in this movement. So many of us are doing a lot of things that are like strategic work and then a lot of reaction work, right? Where we're just like having to respond to certain things. So I am loving to hear you say that. That was a really great answer. And I want to ask you, you know, we got to go into your your history here, you know, the backstory of Oluji, you know, to help the audience understand how you got to where you are today. Yeah. So community has always been something that's been really important um, and has been a, a very key value of mine, cemented by my parents. They came, they immigrated here in the late 80s, early 90s from Nigeria after a civil war, which took place um, in the 60s. And really just wanted a better life for their kids, but they left a lot of their community behind. And so when they got here, they really sought after and found community in like the, the Nigerian community in Minnesota. So like since I was a kid, I've always known what my cultural heritage is and I ha- I've had the privilege of doing that. So 
I started organizing around community really when I came out as queer. Um, I thought I lost a community that like was so important to me for a very long time, which was like my culture and my ancestry because of the homophobia that we see in the world, right? And I started community organizing with this new LGBT community. And I was like, wow, this is really awesome. I'm really doing really dope work and it's furthering the cause of equity and equality. And very quickly I learned that the LGBT community was very white. And I was like, wow, this is some of my identity, but again, this is not all of my identity. And then around 2013, 2014 was really when the movement for Black Lives, Black Lives Matter movement, this iteration of Black liberation really started popping off. Um, and I found myself going to all these actions, doing all of these things, getting activated. And I never really knew the people or the who or the organizations that were putting this together or that were putting the actions together. And in Minneapolis, it was actually a group of like seven to 10 queer trans women and non-binary people that were really like putting together and orchestrating all of these actions that were happening and calling for black liberation in a very specific way. Um, and doing that at the intersections that they were at, right? They were all queer, they're all black, they're all women. Um, and I was like, wow, this is what intersectional organizing can actually look like. Um, and those are actually the people that I organize with till this day. And we started an organization called Black Visions in 2016. And it was, the purpose of it was we understood that people wanted to be activated and people wanted to do things and they needed a structure in order to be able to do that, right? They needed an organization. They needed a political home. And that was always the vision for Black Visions. It's like, how are we creating a, a political home for Black, queer, and trans folks that are specifically rooted in dismantling all of the oppression, all of the systems of oppression that affect us and our many, many, many intricacies right so that's really how I got started into organizing and like where my politic comes from mm, wow I mean what a great background honestly so many layers there and you know I think one of the things that you just mentioned that I can definitely say you know I've heard before with other organizers and it's maybe just a part of our story is this kind of push and pull finding the right family to organize with because really it revolves around a shared sense of not just identity, but of thought. So much of this is about how we see the world, how the world has shaped our understanding of it, our lived experience, how that is infused in it. And so it's it's great to hear your story. And, and I think you just really answered a lot of my, my next question, but I want to go a little bit more into the Black Visions Collective. Let's, let's learn a little bit more about what you guys do. You said you formed it because you realized that folks needed that organizational body. So are you guys really allowing folks to just kind of come in and find that education and, and move it forward in terms of organizing their communities? Yeah, so we've had membership open for about a year now, um, so not very long. And folks are very, like, very open to join, and we're open to join. Currently, we're, like, pausing it because of all of the things that are happening um, in our communities. Yeah, so it's, it's just a space that is unapologetically black and we are unapologetically queer unapologetically trans and we have a very specific politic that we are working towards liberation of all black people and that means black people outside of the u.s that means queer black people that means disabled black people that means women black women right black trans women yeah and we hope to create a political home is a term that we like to call it for folks to be able to sharpen their politic with other people who see them in their whole humanity right 
Because I know a lot of, there are some organizations where it's like, you have to kind of pick and choose what identity you want to fit in in that specific moment. And in terms of like my personal experiences, it was like a lot of the spaces that I was organizing in, in like immigrant spaces or in black spaces, were not holding my queer identity. We're not holding my trans identity, right? Um, and then on the other side, it's like, when I was being held as far as my my queerness and my transness, like my migrant identity wasn't being shown or like my blackness was all, 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 all the time being invalidated. So what does it actually look like for, for us to be an organization that can at least try and like hold people in their specific intersections um, and also try to be better, right? Because we are not a perfect organization because perfection doesn't exist. And also, how are we continuing to decolonize ourselves to be able to be the best organization that we can be for the people of Minneapolis and for the specific community that we're organizing. Yeah, I think that's so smart because, you know, really being responsive to that community is the best way to go. That's how you continue to build that relationship and deepen the relationship, right? Maybe it came about from something else like, oh, you know, hey, we were all, you know, we all grew up together. Like us over here for Africatown Community Land Trust, a lot of our organizing stems from these relationships and being in community, growing up with people, going to the same high schools, you know, uh, our parents knowing each other, going to the same church. So we had this this already sense of connectivity. And then through the work, we've been able to deepen those relationships, deepen that connectivity and really allow for the shines of where where people want to go. Like, oh, you want to focus on food. You want to focus on education. You want to do, you know, social justice reform. You know, what does it really look like? But being able to bolster that ideas, all of those ideas collectively because of that is super important. But you're right. It's about the, the push and pull of the relationship and really being responsible. To, to the folks that you're working for. I, I love hearing that. And, and so, you know, moving a little bit more into your work, because you have uh, Black Visions Collective, but you also have the Black LGBTQ and the, and the Migrant Project. And I just heard you talk about, you know, hey, certain spaces recognizing, you know, hey, you're also a migrant. How do we deal with that? So let's hear a little bit more about that project. Yeah. So the very funny and also stressful for my life thing is that Black Visions Collective and Black the Black LGBTQ Migrant Project or BLMP, I actually started both of them at the same time with two different people, like two different sets of people. So like I've been in like structuring mode of like organizing and building organizations for the last four years, like for 80 hours a week. So the Black LGBTQ Migrant Project actually came out of a grant from... God, I'm forgetting. Ola's going to be so mad. I forgot the specific grant. But uh, Ola got a grant, um, and it was like, I'm going to bring together a bunch of Black queer migrants from across the America and just like bring them together and see what what is needed in this time. And through that first convening or that first gathering, we were really like, this is the first time that there has been a space that has held all of our identities in this way. Mm. Like, this is the first time I'm seeing a group of 50 Black queer migrants from all over, from the Caribbean, from South America, from Africa, from Latin America, right? And it was like, we're like, we need to be able to cultivate these spaces um, and be able to have a space in movement that is for Black, queer, and trans migrants. So from that, there was a steering committee of about 13 folks that came together and were like, how do we actually make what, what we just got into an actual organization? And through that came the Black LGBTQ Migrant Project. So we have been 
since September of 2016, have been working towards uh, building an organization that is specifically looking at the intersections of blackness, of LGBTQ identity, and of migration, right? And when we say migration, um, we specifically mean folks who have migrated to the U.S. or have parents that have migrated to the U.S., right? So I'm someone who is technically called a first-generation American, meaning I was born in America, but my parents migrated here from Nigeria, right? And like, what is that specific intersection look like? And how do we actually talk about migration when we're talking about black liberation? Because black people migrate all the time, right? Like black people migrated from the South to the North after slavery. Black people migrate from Mexico to America, right? Or to the US, right? And then also black people are forced to migrate. And what does that look like, right? After uh, the abolition of um, 18, 1885 or 1865, right? Black people were forced to migrate, right? That wasn't a chosen thing. They weren't like, hey, I'm going to all of a sudden live in this place that I've never lived in. No, they were forced to migrate. The transatlantic slave trade forced black people to migrate. Climate change is forcing black people to migrate. So the, the vision of black of the Black LGBTQ Migrant Project is how do we actually live in a world without forced, forced migration where LGBTQ black people are thriving and not just surviving, right? What does that look like? And like, what are the conditions that create that are created through imperialism, through white supremacy, through capitalism, through patriarchy that forces our people to migrate, right? Homophobia forces our people to migrate. That is specifically the system of patriarchy. Capitalism forces our people to migrate because of the climate change that is happening because we're extracting natural resources. So like all of those things our detriment to our people. So how are we actually doing the work to undo those systems? Yeah, I, I you know what? I'm just motivated over here. Oluchi, I'll just tell you that because honestly, I think you're so, so right. And when you think about the migration, I really love seeing it from that lens specifically because there's so much richness right there in yeah. just that microcosm of American fabric. I mean, it really is literally understanding the nuances and the characteristics, the idealism around a lot of that forced migration specifically and then how we adjust to all of the migration that's happening in a more organic way based Mm -hmm. on all of these other systems. It's really smart to be thinking at it from that lens. So I just give you kudos to that one, my friend. Now, I also have you here as quoted as saying, when trans black women are free, inherently everyone is free because all of those systems have to fall down. And Mm -hmm. I'm going to ask you to expand on that. But I want to say how I'm inspired by that. And I'll say this. When we think about the smallest kind of micro sector of people, and we go into something that is as specific as black trans women in this country, All I can say is, is that I think that that sector of of individuals represents some of the most disparities and atrocities that this country really has to own up to. And so I, I, I love your quote there. Yeah. So as I was saying, as far as like systems of oppression and how intersectionality, how we um, third wave feminism talks about intersectionality. Right. We know under I like to think of it as like the big three of like white supremacy, patriarchy and capitalism. Right. Um, And all of those things influence each other. So when we talk about black trans women, they are affected not just by capitalism. Right. And our inherent need to extract resources to profit off of like labor, off of bodies, off of the land, off of all of these things, right? 
but they also are affected by patriarchy, right? Um, patriarchy tells us that men are more in- are inherently worth more than women, right? And also patriarchy tells us that Anything that's not cis, anything that's not straight, and I'm, I mean cis by cisgender, meaning that you identify with the gender that you were assigned at birth. Anything that is not straight, meaning anything that is queer, anything that is lesbian, gay, anything other than that is inherently bad, right? They are attacked by the system of patriarchy, right? And they're also attacked by the system of white supremacy or anti-blackness. And I'm not saying that other people don't, but as a black person, you are specifically the center of anti-black racism, right? So meaning that once they are liberated, once the system of patriarchy falls, like white women are inherently liberated, right? Asian women are inherently liberated. Latinx women are inherently liberated. Non-binary folks are liberated, right? Once white supremacy falls like Latinx folks, Asian folks, regardless of their sex, regardless of their gender, are also liberated. So meaning that when black trans women are liberated, that means that every system that affects them must fall, meaning everyone benefits. So when we're doing our organizing work, when we're centering people, we must always center black trans women because we know that once they are liberated, everyone else is liberated. So if you're doing work on behalf of black trans women, you're doing work on behalf of black men. You are doing work at on behalf of Asian gay men, right? Because all of those systems affect Black trans women. So smart. And you know what? I, I, I'm really enjoying this podcast format because I'm speaking to some of the most brilliant minds throughout this world. And you're definitely one of them, Oluchi. What can we learn from the equity work that's really happening in Minneapolis right now? Yeah. So the one thing that I would bring up in this time as we're moving through post- heightened moment um, is really just like, how are we actually engaging community in a way that doesn't leave them behind, right? Because I think that with heightened emotions, with everything that's happening, it's very easy to move quickly and move with a point that like the you don't actually see what's not what's behind you or what's not behind you. And I also think that the one thing I'm learning is that Political education is so necessary and not just political education, but specifically abolitionist political education and how we're creating space for folks to vision is so necessary in our movements. Um, One thing that I like to say is that like my job as an organizer is not to yell at politicians like that's a perk. And also my job as an organizer is to give people the space to be able to envision a future where they are liberated, because once they can do that, They have an invested interest in making that future happen. And they also know these are the things that are standing in my way of making that future a reality, right? So understanding and knowing that like, I need to be in community, talking to community about what, what is, what is your vision? How do you keep yourself safe? Right. And understanding that the ways that we live right now are actually not keeping us safe and are not keeping us, our community safe. So how do we shift that in people's mind to be able to do the work that that needs to be done? Um, and another thing that I'm like really learning and what folks can learn from is even like just working community, there's an inherent need to work on yourself, right? Because policing is not just a system that we see the police encompass, right? Policing happens in ourselves too. Like I am conditioned to police people based on the oppressions that I have faced. And that also contributes to how I show up in the world. So to do the work of like actual liberation and abolition, we actually have to do the abolitionist work in and of ourselves to be able to like create that future that we want to live in. 
Yeah, you know, I think you're so right. And I think that a lot of uh, leadership is about self-reflection. You know, it really is. It's about always being ready to identify the areas where you can grow, learn, and also learn from those who are technically following your leadership. Uh, How you can be in such great connection with them that you become a stronger leader. And I think that you're right in terms of looking at all of this work in this way. Now, now you were just mentioning policing and I was going to get right to it because, you know, so much of we, we come from different backgrounds, different perspectives around, you know, what it means in our communities with regard to policing. And I really want to ask you about that because that's something maybe that I can learn from and, and, the, and the audience can learn from because there is a difference. And, I, and I'll just set it up for me. We dealt with a really strong policy here in, in the Central District of Seattle when I was growing up called Weed and Seed. And what basically that did was it had groups of police, you know, they were in a lot of the times they had these like gang vans, they would be going through our neighborhoods, they would take photos of young men who were grouped together, whether they were, you know, waiting for a friend in the store or, you know, going to get bread for their grandma or, you know, headed to football practice, whatever, they would take these photos of these groups of young men, young black men, and they would then create, they created a database basically saying, well, these guys are involved in possible gang activity. Like these are all possible gang members and identified them incorrectly as such. And then based on that data, they deployed a whole framework for policing this area to weed those guys out so that they can have room to seed in new investment, new tenant, new residents. You know, let's get new homeowners in here. Let's get folks, some other folks, right? Um, And so based on that, we experienced a very specific form of policing in our community. And I just want to ask you, you know, what is it that we can all learn here from maybe some of the differences that we're experiencing in our communities with regard to policing? Yeah, and I think it's it's interesting because, like, even that, right, and, like, we call it, like, community, like, neighborhood watch is a form of policing, right? Like, you are looking for and have this idea of what a criminal looks like and basing your interactions to other people off of those, off of those, like, preconceived conceptions, right? So, really, like, what I ask folks is, like, what are ways that you're conditioned to automatically police people, right? Um, and, like, this can look in many different ways, right? I use the example of, for example, someone who is a victim of sexual assault, right? And the first questions we ask are not like, why did this sexual assault happen or where did it happen? But like, what was this person wearing? Where were they walking? Like, what were they doing? All of these things. How many, how, like, how much alcohol did they have? That is a form of policing. You are policing someone of their decisions and of their identities and like framing guilt based off of like your preconceived notions of what what is what is possible that is patriarchy that is like 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 literally that is what we're talking about right i mean policing can look in many different forms of like why is this person wearing something of like like if if someone who is perceived as a male is wearing a, a skirt it's like you are policing what they're wearing by like having this preconceived notion of like this is what this person is supposed to be wearing or this is what this person is supposed to be doing right and that happens a lot in black communities right of like oh there are three young black men that are standing on a corner like 
why are they doing that? And like then policing their decisions of the of of policing their decisions to make those decisions, right? Yeah. So I think my my real my real learning is like how are we assessing and recognizing the ways in which we police others and then how those things then come up in this institution of policing as well because those are like they're the same thing but they're different institutions right the police are just institutionalized police right they they are just getting paid to make preconceptions of people and their decisions so like what we can learn is like what is the personal transformation that's needed for us to actually move from a place of like detriment of like where we're seeing people as criminals, where we're actually looking at what is the best in humanity and like coming from a place of hope? Yeah, yeah. I, I think that when we when we talk about the kind of larger movement, this is why we're almost back at you know, 2008 or something with Barack Obama, where it's just like, you know, hope is the big word of the day right now. And how how do we infuse hope into the American psyche anyways? Can't think about even the global psyche, but just focusing on America. How do we infuse the hope? And I think that, it, you know, it's smart to, to even say that. For me, so much of what I do is really based on my lived experience. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it sounds like that's really where you're coming from as well. I think so many of us that are fueled to work in community, it is because we come from a very specific understanding that allows us to then kind of understand it from a broader perspective, right? Where not only have we been maybe affected by a very specific form of, you know, maybe it was racism or discrimination or something, you know, for me, it was being gentrified, right? That was just like, whoa, you know, all of a sudden my family doesn't matter. Like, what do you mean we don't have enough money to live where we've always lived, right? The, the concept of it, did it, it, it still doesn't make sense to me, right? And so there's always that something that says, you know, that gets you going and says, you know what, I don't care what else is going on in the world. I have to do this work. And, you know, this summer, we all, I think, have experienced a real shift in the American psyche with regard to these uprisings and folks getting out in the street. And here in Seattle, we formed this collective King County Equity Now, which really, again, based on these relationships of the community, knowing people who have been doing this work on the ground, we've been able to collectively say, look, this is what we need. Here's our list of demands. I know that Black Visions Collective has really kind of swelled a lot too, as you have said, like this last few months has probably been a real whirlwind. And I want to ask, like, what is it that you think we can be learning in terms of our coalition efforts and the style that we're taking to, you know, create this kind of collective voice and, you know, move forward with regard to our elected officials so that they hear these demands? Um, You know, I want to hear how you guys are doing that. And then, you know, what can we learn from from you all as as we move forward? Yeah, that's a really good question. With our current call, to invest, reinvest in community. We have a really large um, coalition of different organizations that do different things. And I think that's important in this time is knowing that like our organization is not the only organization that's calling for defunding of Minneapolis Police Department and a reinvestment in community. And like that's necessary because 
no one organization is going to be able to do everything that society needs ever. Right. right. And like, we should never actually think that that's a possibility and we should never organize in that way. Like Black Visions is not the only organization that's unapologetically abolitionist. We're also not the only organization that's calling for um, systemic change. We're also not, we're not the organization that's going to actually create new systems of safety or community safety, right? We can help facilitate the process. We can help like engage as community members. And also we're not, we're not going to be the organization that's going to plan a new system of community safety, right? Uh, we can call for that. We can understand that that is necessary. And also we need other formations of people that are also doing that work. So one thing that I think folks can learn from is that like, regardless of like calling for change and anything, like there are lanes that folks need to play. I like to talk about alignment of like people all going in the same direction, but not taking the same path. So some people are going one way, some people are going the other, but we're all moving towards this aligned vision of liberation, right? So there are people that are going to be healers and like doing a lot of healing work, right? There are people that are going to be um, dismantling systems of oppression. There are people that are going to be envisioning alternatives, right? Even when we look at like co-ops, co-ops job is to create a different system, right? And like advocacy organizations are to actually call through the atrocities of this current system, right? So really the, the, the um, nugget out of that is how are we staying in the lane that we are, we are working in and working with other organizations that are doing different things? Mm, I think you're you're so right about that. We've been having a really great discussion. I didn't even go to break yet, so I'm just going to take a quick second. We are going to go to a quick break, you guys. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with Oluchi from Black Visions Collective. And now it's time for the chime in. In this segment, we bring in voices from our community to see what they have to say. Well, I'm going to just introduce myself first. Okay, Wale Akinlo Sotu. I work with Africa Town as a volunteer, King County Equity Now, and the African Now Association. Uh, my parents came from Nigeria um, over, over 30 years ago now. And so just seeing the, the Nigerian community's perspective on black issues, uh, this disconnect between our culture um, from back home and then also the the black culture here in, in the U.S. And in my parents' case, they learned the hard way um, that our, our equity was tied together. And there was a lot of similarities between what they were fighting for and the life they wanted to live and the, the same fights that African-Americans had to go through. I think it's very clear that our equity is tied together. And so I think it is up to our generation to, you know, ensure that there's unity between our struggles and move equity forward for black people, whether African or African-American together. So what what are your thoughts, Latio? Okay, my name is Latio Cosmos and, you know, I've been involved in community work for, um, especially with youth for a while. And, you know, in regards to immigration and, you know, equity here in the United States, my experience is, um, is, is pretty unique because I moved here with just my siblings and I. And so, you know, I, we, we, we never had the opportunity to see, you know, our parents' reaction to the reality of the United States and the inequities that, that are faced by black people. 
However, um, like Wale said, you know, I see that extremely clearly. And so as, as an immigrant, you know, I'm often um, tempted to romanticize going back to, to Africa and saying, you know, that things are going to be better. But, you know, when I confront the reality is that I will be fighting the exact same battle over there. You know, the faces may look different, mm-hmm. it's to, but it's still the same issues and the same roadblocks to either land equity or, you know, employment opportunities, healthcare, food, all the things that are faced by black people here in the U.S. are the exact same things that, you know, my parents tried to run from. So at the end of the day, there's a, you know, shared destiny when fighting for equity. And the way I see it, you know, the only way to truly change things is by uniting hands and saying, you know, you're facing the same thing I'm facing. Why are we not figuring out how we can collectively overcome this once and for all so that, you know, the next generation don't have to go through the same issues and same realization that these things are not working for us. Um, So, yeah. That's, that's all I got. Thanks to everybody who joined us for the chime in. And now back to the show. Well, thank you so much for sticking with us. You guys are listening to Equity Rising. I am your host, Trey Holiday, and I am so elated to be speaking with Oluchi Black Visions Collective out of Minneapolis. This has been an amazing discussion with you. And I think, honestly, uh, uh, thus far, in, you know, having a, I know that was a solid first first half there of our, our session, but it was really about aligning, setting so much up that I understood so much of this work is in alignment. You know, part of the reason uh, for this entire podcast is because I think we are more strengthened. We are stronger when we understand that there are so many of us who are really doing a lot of this work on the ground. And we also know that it isn't necessarily going to be all picked up by major media, right? Like news outlets are not at all of our organizing meetings. They're not there as we're, you know, collectively uh, getting people's voices heard as we're doing other things to like push demands forward. They're not really there. What they're there for is to kind of capture maybe some of the big moments when we have, you know, thousands of people, you know, maybe they're there for some of that, or maybe they're there when the, for the outcomes, right. Of all the pressure our work has been putting on, whether it's elected officials, city officials, whatever, that our work has been putting on certain power of authority figures to move and make change. And then they want to Address, right? Oh, well, you know, you guys have been behind a lot of this work. But I, I really wanted to, to, to check in with you and see how has it been for media coverage and folks understanding that there is now this collective in Minneapolis, this coalition that's come together that is really asking for and demanding for this reinvestment into community. How has that been in terms of getting that message out on a, on a mass scale with regard to some of the outlets and channels you have available down there? Yeah, so um, even in the beginning of this uprising, um, one of the first things that we did, other than the call to defund, was really, we have a lot of national partnerships. I'm a national organizer. I've been a national organizer for two years. Some other folks on our steering committee have also been national organizers for many years before this. So one thing that we have been fortunate enough to have is connections with people who are doing work in other places, who are doing work nationally. And with everything that was happening, Um, It was very easy for us to get that message, that very aligned message across. 
But as things have faded, um, obviously, like, the, the media has faded, but it's really around, like, doing the work even when the, the cameras are not on. Right. Right? And, like, specifically with Black Visions and with the campaign that we use, Reclaim the Block, um, we've been doing this work for since 2018. So in 2018, we came together um, and called for a defunding of the Minneapolis Police Department. We won that that campaign. We won $1.1 million out of the Minneapolis Police Department. Again, in 2019, came together. We actually lost that campaign. So like, this is not just like, hey, we found, like, we 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 decided that we're going to do this in this time because we think people are going to pay attention. It's like, we've been doing this work and we continue doing this work. So like, what I say is that like, do the work because you want to do the work. Don't do the work because of the, the media. Like, yeah. the media, unfortunately, will come because that's what the media does. Like, they come in times of high um, visibility to get views. Like, that is the point of the mass media machine. Um, and also, like, I think is investing in media that is for us, by us. Like, podcasts yeah. like this, right? So it's like, how are you actually communicating with, like, like Unicorn Riot back in during the 4th Precinct? That was one of our closest comrades. So it's like, what are the connections that you have? What are the relationships that you have um, to the media outlets that are actually going to tell your story in the way that you want to, right? And also everything in organizing comes down to relationships. What are the relationships that you have? So really cultivating the relationships that you that you have and like not just like relationship for relationship's sake, but because we know that this world is interconnected and that we are all connected to each other. So knowing that, how are we in relationship with each other that holds both of our humanity? Um, and that validates both of our humanities. Yeah, can't agree with you more on that one. Thank you so much for uplifting that because I think you're so right. One of the things that I will say, there's some, you know, we're fortunate up here. For me, you know, I, I produce uh, and, and, and host and work with Converge Media. That's a, a local, you know, on the ground community media. Uh, we have Rainer Avenue Radio. That's community media. We got South Seattle Emerald. That is a publication. We got the facts and the medium. They're all publications, but they're black owned. All of these black owned channels that are all right here within, you know, the, between the central district and south end of Seattle. So they're very close together. You know, we're, we're uh, partner neighborhoods, basically communities. And it's a beautiful thing to witness. And that's why I love hearing you say that, because having those connections to your own media outlets, that's one of the greatest things about uh, the Internet and, you know, us being able to get messaging directly to the people, because I think that so much of our work is also galvanizing folks and getting them to understand that it's about the rally. We got to go now. We got to strike while the iron is hot. And you have that. And then you also have this, all of this ideas around educating folks. Because so much of our community is like, what are y'all, what's going on? Like, I never had to deal with this before. I, You know, this is a foreign concept to me. Like, what are you talking about? So I want to ask you with regard to the education that it really takes to get a lot of folks up to speed on some of these kind of more nuanced issues, politically charged issues how are you guys dealing with that in your community yeah actually um it's it's kind of really it was really wild to me because when people are activated they're more willing to learn yeah. right and i i saw in the moments of george floyd i was i was teaching my parents about abolition right like i was having very deep discussions with like my parents people that i never thought would be able to have those conversations about like what does abolition look like what does it mean what is the history of it um so we've been doing a lot of very regular like political education um and we're doing a lot in the first couple months 
of uh, the uprising around like, what does it actually look like? What is abolition? Um, and people were very receptive of it. And the one thing that I learned was that like once folks knew and understood what it looked like, it really gave them the uh, the space to be able to vision around like, wow, like this is really dope. What do what do I actually want? What does safety actually look like to me? And like actually look at those contradictions of like where we're at and where we want to be. Um, so it's been very receptive and people are willing to learn and want to learn about like what is abolition what does defunding mean um, what is the pathway to liberation all of these things yeah I also want to ask too in terms of like a bit of the education a lot of it for us has been about the reallocation of resources right you know a lot of folks talking about okay what does it look like to reinvest in communities what does it look like to actually do some of these demands that are coming from community uh, and so I want to ask you we, we've been framing a lot of stuff for us over here in regards to like participatory budgeting, right? Like we need a participatory budgeting process. That's how we're going to reinvest this money. How have you guys been thinking about a lot of that kind of allocation of resources? Yeah, so same as far as like participatory budgeting is like really like why why are the the issues that we're having existing and like what are the root causes, right? So it's like if you cut like cut into your stomach, you wouldn't put a Band-Aid over that, right? It's like you actually have to do some very intense work to be able to find out like what is the root cause of this issue, right? So participatory budgeting is a tool that we're really interested in experimenting with um, on a municipal level of like, what does it actually look like for us, the people who are paying taxes, the people that are living in the community to be able to have control and have actual input over where the money goes, right? And I think what is needed for participatory budgeting is very deep political engagement, right? And civic engagement, um, right? Because if if we say, hey, we're going through this process and only 10 people actually do the process, then that's not actual participatory budgeting. And that's the same thing with this like system of policing, right? It's like we, to in order to change from a, a system that is extractive to a system that is regenerative, we actually, and like, we actually have to have community's input, meaning we have to talk to every single person in the community to see like, what is the process that we want to go through that actually holds every single community member. And it's possible. It's just going to take a lot of work. It's going to take a at a time and people have to be engaged in that process or else it's not going to work. So that's one thing that we're really interested in. And also it's like when we're talking about reinvesting in community, it's like, what is the, what does the police actually do? They criminalize people for being homeless. Why are we paying people to criminalize people for being homeless when we can just pay for people to have houses, right? Yeah. The solution to houselessness is giving everyone a house. It's not criminalizing people for being houseless, yeah. right? And th that can be said for a lot of different things. The reason why people steal is not because they like stealing. It's because they they think that the only way to be able to like live in this world is to be able to is is to steal. Right. So instead of having people being criminalized, why don't we just give people livable jobs that they love? Right. That they are that they want to do. Right. Why aren't we paying people to do the things that they love to do in, in this life? And then people don't have to, like, go through acts of poverty or uh, crimes of poverty is like, like what I like to call it. Right. Um, and that can be set up for multiple things. Right. 
people always like to say, well, what if someone is assaulted? All of these things. It's like 1% of cases are actually acted upon, right? And even in Minneapolis, there was this huge, huge thing that came out that 50% of rape cases um, were thrown away. That they they weren't they weren't opened up they weren't looked into they weren't investigated fifty percent were not investigated so like what are the police actually doing um, so instead of paying hundreds of millions of dollars into the police budget why aren't we actually using that money to reinvest in community instead yeah yeah I, you know what and I agree with you I can't agree with you more on that because uh, when we think about all the money that gets put into systems that aren't actually bringing about solutions. It then we then go, well, then why aren't we just actually putting that money into solutions? And I think you're so right. So much of this country actually is built on the very kind of work of policing, right? And it's and it's not just policing. It's that supervisor on the job who's ensuring that all of you don't steal uh, from the cookie jar, right? It's the yep, same. Exactly. It's, it goes on and on and on. And, and really, we see it. It's woven in every fabric uh, of mm-hmm. our society. And it's something that I, I'm so glad you uplifted it in that way because you're absolutely right that that so many things are focused on the symptoms and not the solutions and so uh i i love that Go yeah ahead. and i think the reason for that too is like because the symptoms are being profited off of by by a, by a small elite right and it's like that's why it's because only one percent of people own 99 percent of the wealth like this is why and the, the reason why the the fabric of our society is built that way is so those people can stay in power and those people can stay wealthy and like we're fighting within ourselves when we're actually not the enemies of ourselves when it's actually capitalism that's the enemy and who is actually profiting off of capitalism yes yes I'm coming down there I need to meet you Oluchi yeah we're going to make this happen because (laughs) I'm all about everything you're saying and to be honest that's what this podcast is doing for me I'm meeting so many cool people like yourself who I'm like this is what I'm talking I knew we're not the anomalies here we're not Mm -hmm. the minorities here our ideals about you know equity for all about liberation for all and like really righting the wrongs of this country starting with black liberation and black equity and understanding that that is not like a small thought. Yeah. I mean, this yeah. is like a, so many people across the world understand this. And, mm-hmm. and what you just said really hits the nail on the head for me because we're dealing with a system. I just said it to these guys before you logged on. We're dealing with a system that really does create like those on the hill and those in the valley. Mm-hmm. And sure, maybe there are some that are in the middle of the hill and valley because they're like, hey, I make six figures. I'm doing all yep. right. Like, I'm yep. okay. You know, my kids go to private school. I'm fine. But the, the ideas about these disparities, they're real and they are there for a reason because you're yep. right. Those people up at the top are definitely profiting from so much that's built in. We talk about the system a lot right now, and I think there's this growing awareness. I want to ask you about this growing awareness about, hey, the system isn't broken. It's working the way it was designed. Mm-hmm. And what we're actually describing when you when I heard you give your big three and I'm like, that's exactly right. I mean, everything that you said reinforces that. So I know you touched on it a little bit, but I wanted to dive in specifically about how this system is literally built to create what we're seeing right now and what you and I are really fighting for on the ground. Yeah, um, like I said before, I like to say the big three um, as white supremacy, capitalism, and patriarchy. And it inherently puts humans in a hierarchy, right? So it's like 
white men are worth, let's say, 100% of a human and like black men are worth less because they are black. Black women are worth even less because they are black and they are women. Black gay women are worth even less because they are gay, they are black. And like it puts us in these like in this different hierarchy that says this body is worth more than this body. And then automatically because of that, we actually live life in that conditioning. So we actually you we actually think that people are worth less because of this thing. People are worth less because they are not working. People are less worth less because they are disabled. People are worth less because they do not do not contribute to society in the ways that we think that we we need to contribute to society, right? And it's like the the question behind all of that is is like what tells us that right what tells us that someone who isn't working isn't worth enough because they're not contributing to capitalism it's because someone is not benefiting off of their labor because someone is not benefiting off of their humanity right so that's the system that we're talking about is like when we talk about capitalism capitalism inherently says that the land the people the animals are all worth a certain dollar amount and to be able to like to live in life to like succeed in life is to be able to benefit off of people's people's labor off of the 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 work of black people of um with the transatlantic slave trade the work of the environment as far as like unnecessarily cutting down trees ruining climate all of these things like that is what the system of capitalism tells us right and the system of white supremacy reinforces that like because you are a white person you can actually profit off of this black person's labor because they are other than you they are not worth as much as you are all of these things um and the same thing with patriarchy telling like women that like your job is to like make babies your job is to sit at home and do these things your job is to do that um and also tells like inherently trans people that their bodies are not are not worth anything that they are invalid all of these things and when we when we are hearing those things when we're when we're conditioned in those ways that's how our body is going to react to other people mm. and the the work that i do is like how do we actually undo those systems in ourselves so that we can undo them in other people as well oh my goodness yes oh luji absolutely i just you know what the whole time i've just been like yes i can't agree with you more but it's so so true because i think that you know when you're working in this work and this is like your philosophy and then you just hear it from someone else it's just a life affirming you know you're on the right track and i think that that's really what the strengthening when we talk about solidarity and like doing this work across the nation in a form of solidarity i'm all about that so i'll have to talk to you more about the national organizing because I need to know what that is and like how do you do that how do you get involved so I'll definitely be following up with you on that uh, before we get out of here I want to just kind of end it here on two different things you know let's let's talk about you know maybe one of your biggest lessons learned during this kind of swell of the movement and one of your greatest victories so uh, you know you can talk about the background of those two things you know kind of where you are today with them but I really want to talk about biggest lesson learned and biggest victory yeah, my biggest lesson learned is that nothing happens in a microcosm and everything is connected. Um, and I think even more so is that like, I, I said this before, but like, we really need to do some very deep 
like relational organizing with our people and like what does that look like and how, like how do we actually do that like because regardless of the the theories that I have and like the vision that I have my vision is nothing without the vision of other people I'm um, like really inspiring people to be able to see their humanity and see the humanity of every single human being and that's something that like I can't teach anyone I can't teach anyone to like love other people and it's like how do we actually create conditions and create moments and create space so that people can see the humanity in every single person. Because once that happens, then we can actually move from a place of extraction to a place of regeneration and transformation, right? And I think my greatest, my greatest victory, honestly, is very, like, it, it might be very small, but it's, like, very impactful to me, is during the uprising and everything that was happening, um, one, like, my parents reached out to me and, like, we had really deep, discussive conversations around, like, what is abolition in this time? And also family back home from Nigeria were having conversations and just seeing that like the work that's being done here, how it ripples into like the work that's being done everywhere was just so impactful to me and like really invigorated the work that I'm doing of like people that like in Nigeria of like from my village are like talking about the things that are happening, which is like really, really deep and really, really dope for me. And like, really, like, yeah, just, just that, just that, that essence was just really, really awe striking. Oh, my goodness. I love hearing that. And you know what? You're absolutely right. Because I think that a lot of this is, you know, we talk about incremental change. Yes. But it really is like one mind after another. You know what I mean? It's person by person. And so much of it is about all of us really understanding that we just need to be loving people. Right. That 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 we're all really one. You know, really, I go back to that. Like, we're all one. There's like we're, there's not a lot that really makes us different makes you different, makes you have hair there and me have this hair or you have that skin or me have whatever. But when we recognize so much of the similarity amongst all of us, we then begin to to wash away a lot of the differences. I think really getting this country to a place of reckoning with its past is where we are right now. So I just thank you so much for your work. Is there anything that we did not touch on that you want to make sure we touch on before I let you go? I would just, the one thing that I would bring up that has happened in the last week since we talked before is the work that's happening in Nigeria right now. So if folks don't know um, SARS, I forgot what SARS stands for. I'm going to look it up really quick because we're on Zoom. The Special Anti-Robbery Squad of um, Nigeria, which is basically like a police force that was being deployed to basically criminalize young, queer um, Nigerians, right? And like, say like, you all are like, like you, because you have tattoos, because you have iPhones, because you do, you do this, you do that, like you are more likely to rob someone. Um, and all of the work and all of the uprising that's happening in Nigeria right now to end SARS. Um, and I think that like, I don't, I, I don't want to say that the, uh, the, the uprisings that are happening in, in America are a causation of that, but they are correlated, right? Um, and they are correlated just as apartheid was correlated to the civil rights movement, right? And vice versa of like, the things that are happening here are not just happening in America. Policing is a global issue. Policing is not just an issue in America. It's not just an issue in the UK. It's an issue that's happening everywhere. And the reason why this uprising is so special in this moment is because 
everywhere across the globe, people are realizing that this this is an issue that's 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 also that's happening in our communities as well, and that's what makes this so powerful. Um, and I want folks to like look up what's happening with SARS um, BLMP on their Instagram um, right now. Actually, um, not probably at the time of recording this, but like when, when we're recording this, is having a live discussion around like what is the SARS movement, what is happening in Nigeria, and that'll be on our IGTV. So if you want to go look at that, we're at official BLMP on Instagram. Um, and two of our members, um, Inanna and Femi, are having a conversation about SARS. Um, so, yeah, just just know that the work that's happening now, the work that you're doing, that you might be looking at, is not just happening in America. It's happening all over the globe. Absolutely. Oluchi, thank you so, so much for giving us your time. I'm so appreciative. Definitely walking away feeling great about this great interaction and connection to you, my friend. Stay strong out there in Minneapolis. They definitely need all of your work out there. And I'm just glad that our audience and me and myself personally, I was able to be enriched by your lived experience. So thank you so much. I so appreciate you. Yeah, thank you for having me. This has been a great hour and a half of my life. Awesome. Uh, You guys have been listening to Equity Rising.